I grew up in a period of time and in a home where the Christian faith was heavily and um, um, probably, probably imbalanced in its focus on the holiness of Christian behavior. And before I say too much, there's, there's nothing wrong with holiness. God is holy, right? Um, the, as a young follower of Jesus, what I learned about holiness as a response to the death of Jesus on the cross was this. He did his part by saving me. Now I have to do my part by making myself holy and maintaining my holiness by following the rules. And um, to do that, I had to severely restrict my choices, severely restrict where I went, um, who I went with, what I did. Also, if I had unconfessed sin in my life, God wouldn't forgive me, wouldn't answer my prayers, and certainly with unconfessed sin, my assurance of heaven was on the line. And Holiness was what I must maintain in order to live under the favor of God and increase the probability that I'm holy enough to eventually graduate to heaven. Now, nobody said those words. Nobody said those words. And nobody actually in, in my, um, kind of in my life really would say they believe those words. But in the way things were prioritized and that the way things were communicated, that was what landed for uh, um, several different generations and several different um, angles. Now, the problem with that is none of these statements, none of what I just said, actually requires a whole lot of Jesus. Jesus does the saving, but I do the sanctifying, right? So his death on the cross is assumed, but only as something that he did for everybody to make everybody everybody's salvation possible. And then for anyone who's willing to do the work of holiness, then you're on your own. So, um, I think it's maybe worth noting, here's a warning, any teaching, any admonishment, any equipping, any preaching, any learning that you do that somehow separates holiness from the work of Jesus, the ongoing work of Jesus, is a disaster. It's a disaster worth um, noticing. So, um, it's, it's the process of holiness and sanctification separate from Jesus, right, is destructive in our lives. And we find ourselves loading ourselves down with guilt and shame, a sense of failure, and we say, Jesus, save me. Why can't I sanctify myself? I'm so, so discouraged. So, is the Christian faith, is it this quick formula, real quick? Is it repent, right? Repent, for God so loved the world, you come to Jesus, you repent and believe, and then he saves you. And then after he's done his work, I do the work of rules and resist. Rules and resist. What do I mean? I follow God's rules and I resist the world's poisons. And everybody knows what the world's poisons are, right? It's music, movies, and missing church. Does everybody know that? I don't need to, I'll leave it at that, right? m and M. And then, so simple, so easy. So, what is holiness? Now, we won't spend a lot of time on the whole topic of holiness. In fact, if I were you, when I heard the word holiness, I'd be like, oh man, how did I pick this Sunday to make sure I was there? Other than wanting to avoid being unholy, you know what I mean? 
So what is holiness? Check this out. Here's a biblical, theologically sound snapshot of what the word holiness means. It honestly has almost nothing to do with restricting yourself from stuff and has everything to do with this. It's the concept of set-apartness. Set-apartness. Now, that's half the story. Here's the other half of the story. Something is holy as it fulfills its original design and purpose. That means that when something is designed, it has an original purpose, and it becomes holy when that thing is used for its original design and its purpose. Some of you might have a shotgun for a little security at home or a little fun out in the field, but shotguns are designed, obviously, to shoot stuff. Shotguns are not (laughs) designed to stir paint, even though it might be handy. Not designed to pull the cobwebs down. It's certainly not supposed to be used as a walking cane. Shotguns are sanctified and become holy when shotguns are shooting stuff, right? So that becomes a picture of what it's like when you think about the holiness of someone who belongs to God. It's someone who's a child of God who is living out their original design and purpose the way that God fully intended in life, marriage, career, mission, purpose in their life, when that is being lived according to God's plan and design, you're actually finding God by His Spirit bringing sanctification to your life. All of it in complete trust and treasure of Jesus. So, such an important concept for us to gather. And Paul is preaching, teaching, and writing to the Ephesians here, and he's talking about God's new family with new design and new purpose. And what he says at the beginning is that God has a story. He has reconciled the entire universe under the authority of Jesus. Then he has reconciled the insiders and the outsiders into one new family. No more insiders who follow the rules and outsiders who are condemned to separation from God. Now, by faith through Jesus, now the level playing field exists and there's one new family. And then Jesus by His Spirit, is indwelling this entirely new family. And because of that story, therefore now they all, as a family, individually and corporately, live out a brand new life of transformation. They throw off the old and they put on the new nature and they begin to change and they find their life transformed. So God's story, when you see it, believe it, and receive it, Therefore, it brings transformation in our life. And Paul is on the new nature transformation part of Ephesians here, talking about chapter 5. When we were new parents, um, we had a lot to learn. And there were some things that we learned as parents that I knew we were going to have to learn, right? I knew we were going to have to learn to raise an infant child for three to six months or longer with no sleep. Um and in the state of delirium. I knew that. I knew that that was going to... I didn't know how hard it was going to be. I knew that that was the case. But one of the things that I didn't learn is that the uh, child would eventually start to shuffle along furniture and that when they start doing that, you have to child-proof your home. I didn't, I didn't know. I did not know this. Um, so now I think probably more than ever, there's ways to child-proof your home that are probably incredibly simple. But um, back then, back when everything seemed black and white, there was no color back then when I was raising our first child, we, um, 
we started by childproofing the house, especially the kitchen. Now, why would a parent start with the childproofing in the kitchen? Anybody have any guesses? You're right. Under the sink, when you open the cabinets, there are poisons that kill adults. Not on purpose, right? I mean, but you don't want your infant, you know, little, doing a little shuffle along the uh, stools on the breakfast bar and then over to the sink and then helping themselves to the green Kool-Aid under the sink. So we childproof it. And there is no doubt in my mind that when we lock up the cabinets that are full of deadly, deadly poisons, we are putting those restrictions on the infant child because we love that child and we absolutely, are absolutely committed to protecting and preventing disaster. And this is so vital. This is so vital. If you're new to the Christian faith, or maybe you're a longtime disciple, or if you're a young person, especially if you're 12 years old and older, this is so vital. The restrictions that God has described to us in the Scripture, the, restri- the restrictions that we're going to talk about today, they're in there because God our Father knows that if He doesn't restrict some of the things that we have access to, it will serve as a deadly poison in our hearts, in our minds, in our relationships. And it is motivated and activated by His infinite love for us. How many of you have found that to be true? Those restrictions in your life. In fact, some people in our culture, and this, this could be literally a, a full day-long seminar, seminar, in our culture, there is something ir, uh, um, irrevocably connected with being happy, and that is living free. Living free means being happy, right? Free to do whatever, say whatever, um, be whoever. The absolute unrestricted um, flying or throwing off of any restrictions is the only way to be free. But what we find is the opposite. And I love this illustration. Sometimes uh, Timothy Keller uses it quite a bit, and I think uh, I've read it in Maybe uh, he's referring to some of the more classic authors, too, who talks about um, when you take a fish out of the restrictions of water, let's not hope that it lives free, right? We're not helping a fish by taking it out of the water, right? And say, hey, you've been restricted by this river, right? So we're going to set you free. Go, fishy. In fact, the, f- the fish is sanctified and lives by its design and holiness with maximum life and vitality when it's in the limitations of the water. So God has designed us as new believers, as new people, a part of his new family with restrictions. And when we live those restrictions, we learn that we are receiving them as God's love. Now, the question is, who's putting those restrictions on us? Are these traditions? Are these... Um, you know, controlling adults and church leaders or are these God's restrictions? So we're going to kind of dial into what some of those restrictions are. But I want you to, I, I hope, I hope that I've inspired you to see these restrictions as we are but little shuffling infants in the family of God and the, he has restricted us from, from some things that will poison our lives. They will poison our lives. And and, and, and what he does is he says, you have, and you remember Adam and Eve, he does this all the way back at the beginning, he says to Adam and Eve, you have everything, not this. 
And what are they like? They're like, well, what about that? Well, you have everything, not this. Could you tell me more about that? Literally like an infant child. I don't know if you're following me here, Adam and Eve, but you have everything and also me. What do they want? Whatever else that God's restriction has. So um, God's boundaries and the behaviors that he expects of us and inspires us and empowers us by his spirit to actually live, those are boundaries and behaviors that protect us and they promote healthy living. It's so practical. When you live a gospel-centered life and you live out your holiness, you live out your sanctification, your design, you're not sad all the time and miserable kicking rocks because you're missing out on everything. How many of you would tell me that at one point that was true for you? You did everything, you had all the liberties, you took all the liberties and found that after coming to saving faith in Jesus, life got more restricted but more joyful and peaceful. Anybody? Joyful and peaceful with the limitations. So, this is what the main idea is. God's new family counters the culture by adopting boundaries and behaviors that are given by God, not traditions and overzealous controlling church leaders and spiritual authorities. Those behaviors, those boundaries and behaviors that protect them and also they promote his reputation. So in this passage that we're reading together in Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to see what and why and how. And specifically, we're going to see what, which is imitate God. We're going to see why to do that because we are dearly loved children of His. And how we do it, it's quite simple. Paul focuses on the purity of life by avoiding evil deeds and associations and by adopting God's new parameters and his new, correctives, uh, uh, um, his new practices, avoiding vices and taking on new virtues. So, and we're going to learn about what God has designed for us in relationships, sexuality, marriage, family, attitude, work. It's limitless in the book of Ephesians. We're not doing all that today, but um, it's there. So, here's where we start. Here's where we start. By start, I don't mean... Um, that was the introduction. I mean, this is the really specific part of the Scripture text, okay? Since you're a dear child of God, you counter the culture by imitating Him in everything you do. So when you're trying to think, what does God want me to do? How does God want me to respond? Oh, I can't believe someone sprung that on me. What am I supposed to do now? Here's your first answer. How has God operated with me? How has God operated with me? Has He been patient? Has He been gracious? Has he been um, long-suffering? How has God operated with me? What does that mean? That means that we learn as a dear child of the Father to be in our culture doing stuff completely different than our culture does it simply by starting with imitating God in everything we do. It's not easy to counter the culture. Most of us very naturally conform to the culture. We do what the culture does. We expect what the culture expects. We function the way the culture function. It's very, very challenging to be conformed to Jesus instead of, um, uh, very, very difficult to be conformed to Jesus instead of kind of live like a chameleon within the culture. Chameleons are so cool though, aren't they? Aren't they cool? I mean, if you really study chameleons, um, I got to stay on track, Dan. Be, be, be the big boy Dan here today. Stay on track. I was just really, chameleons change their skin color. They change their skin color. And 
the way that they do it. Listen, I know that there are some skeptics about whether or not there's really a God and a designer, and some people say, well, what about the suffering and all the children who hurt and the innocent, if there was really a God? All of those are very, very natural and normal questions. But there are times where I think of things like what a chameleon does, the, the way in which it somehow instinctively knows and its skin is equipped to change even into the texture of the, of the, of the background that it's in to survive. Just a couple of days ago, I was thinking about how elaborate the human eye is. I was talking about this with, with one of our uh, church attenders, and I was talking about how fascinating it is that a child, uh, we were standing in a circle in the morning, and the child, uh, um, and we were praying, and somehow I looked over and, and locked eyes with one of the uh, family's little one, um, maybe a couple years old, and she was scanning the prayer circle. Nobody was watching. Praying, everybody's got their head down, praying, except the pastor. And as soon as her eyes came around to me, I was locked right on her eyes, and the first thing she did is normal and natural. I'm used to this. It doesn't hurt my feelings. She freaked out and took one big, huge step and hid behind her mother's leg. And what I was saying was, how does that child know that, I mean... How is our soul being communicated through our eyes? And when we have eye contact, she's like, oh, that's a person seeing me. She just looked at all the peoples. And all the peoples weren't looking at her, so they were safe. All of a sudden, bam, locked eyes. And here's what, here's what I'm hoping that you see, that God has created us, and he's created us by his design, and he's created us to live in a counterculture way, not to somehow contort ourselves and, 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 and chameleon ourselves into whatever the culture's doing and whatever the culture's demanding or whatever the culture's expecting, right? And what does that take? It takes the work of the Holy Spirit in us, and our passage in this chapter 5 here shows a contrast using of believers and non-believers inside God's family and outside God's family. And this passage shows the contrasting images of light and dark and a contrasting image of children in the family and those who are selfishly rebellious outsiders who live outside the family. So our passage in Ephesians begins with this perfect description of biblical holiness or set-apartness. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do because you are his dear children. So we see what we're supposed to be doing. We're imitating God. And the reason we're doing it is because we are God's child. We belong to God, been created by God. They are to be like him, all of his people, not as slaves, but like his children. That one idea would probably set many of you free that when you come to saving faith and you belong to God's family, you now function as a child of God, not as a slave of God. Some of you discovered that over the course of years, and you look back and you're like, that's where the source of my pain came from. I saw myself as a slave of God, not as a dearly loved child, as a dear, dear child of the Father. And... Holiness isn't living a life of sin avoidance and trying harder. I mentioned that earlier. It's not sin avoidance and trying harder. Our new way to shed the chameleon skin. It's a new way to shine brightly here in our culture. God designed us to be like Him, to live in perfect relationship with Himself as His child, and to live a life of love. And we have been made by God, for God, to be like God. We've made by God for, God, for God to be like God. And so 
our starting point with living a life of sanctification or holiness or more godly living is to imitate God. And so, um, what does that mean? And, and how does this happen? For once, here's an image, here's a contrast. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light. There's an identity change. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. If you have somewhere to write anything down, write down 2 Corinthians 4, 6. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, it goes like this. For God who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is in the face of Jesus. So where does this light come from? It doesn't come from being cheerful and happy and fake it till you make it. This light that he gives us to kind of imitate God and, and live our sanctification or our holiness or countercultural, the way that he's done this is there is a new indwelling spirit shining the light of Jesus that can be seen in his face that has infinite supreme value and worth that brings a newness to our identity, our, our identity from the inside. We become people of light. People of light doesn't mean happy all the time, but people of light means hopeful all the time. Always inner peace. Uh, so the lamp of the gospel has been switched on, and now in our old prison cell of sin, it's revealed the true squalor of the world and everything it has to offer. So having been declared righteous in Jesus, we are now also being made righteous by Jesus. Right, So we're declared righteous in Jesus, and then we're becoming and being made righteous by Jesus. So Bible-believing Christians, chapter 5 is describing some of the boundaries and behaviors that protect us and promote God's reputation. Here's where we start with a list of three, very, very quick list of threes. Number one, sacrificing love. So he says, imitate God. Where do you start? Self-sacrificing love. Why would he start at self-sacrificing love? Well, it replaces self-indulgent lust, number one. Um, But more importantly, God is love, and anyone who belongs to God is loving, right? So what it means is there is a mark of um, people who belong to God have a mark, and the mark is loving. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us, and he offered himself as a sacrifice for us a pleasing aroma to God. So um, the fruit of faith, the fruit of saving faith is, when you're trying to figure out, and this is kind of unwise, but you're trying to figure out, I'm not sure, I mean, they belong to Jesus, don't belong to Jesus, kind of a fruitless activity, but if that ever, what are we looking for? What are we aiming for? Is, is the fruit of belonging to God Again, is it church attendance? Is it avoiding certain things? It is love. What happens is we light up with, it, with the glory that's in the face of Jesus, and we begin to imitate him, and it starts by look, you look like God when you look like someone who is sac- self-sacrificial in your love. It's not that thrilling, is it? It's not that exciting. It's not that insightful. But the number one marker is love. The most godly aspect of a Christian or God's child is love. It's not being right. It's not being righteous. It is someone who is loving. And 
it's important for us to recognize that counterculture Christian holiness is a life of walking in love, primarily a love for God, but a love for other people. And that love that we're talking about, um, and, and, and maybe you're someone who has a spark of desire to be Christ-like at work or at home, when you do it the way that Jesus does it, there, requires, there, there comes a sacrifice. Love takes action, and in that action, it, there is some suffer love. And this suffer love, we talked about this uh, on Good Friday, this suffer love is the highest form of love because it's self-sacrificing to the point of suffering. When somebody loves somebody and they suffer for them, i.e., you have a brand new infant and you go without sleep for months in order to make sure that child has everything it needs. It's suffer love. You are demonstrating your love by taking action, elevating the needs of that infant child. And you are demonstrating that your love is the highest form of love because you're willing to suffer for the, for the uh, benefit of the, of the um, other. So Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice for us and it's a pleasing aroma to God and that's the, that's the sign. Costly love for others. Taking action, suffering, yielding, and giving. Emptying ourselves even to the point of pain and cost. That's how we demonstrate real love. It isn't just being nice. I mean... Um, Sometimes people say, well, that church wasn't very loving. And then when they describe to me the church, it's like, it sounds like they're just unfriendly, right? There's a profound difference between unloving and unfriendly, right? You kind of hope they go together. Wouldn't that be nice? They kind of, you know, but um, it's being, being loving like this, like Jesus was. Jesus didn't just come to earth to be friendly and say, you guys, would you be nice to each other? I mean, someone needs the door held open. Would you hold it open? I know they might call you names and stuff because... You're, you know, you're somehow they're more empowered than you're, than you're treating them. Forget all that. Just would you be nicer? Do you know anybody that's looking for a church family because there's an absence of nice people in their life and they're hoping to find friendly faces? They're hoping they don't find frowny faces, but most people are looking for God. And when looking for God, what they're expecting to see is not just friendly people, but people who everywhere are investing themselves in suffer love, carrying the burdens of other people spending their own time, money, effort, energy, and sometimes blood, sweat, and tears to care for other people. That's the mark of the new family of God that is countercultural. It is love for um, people rather than loving their own kingdom. So he goes on and he says, let there be no sexual morality, impurity, or greed among you. Such places have no place among God's people. So God obviously is not against these things, right? God created human sexuality. He invented it, designed it as a thrilling and intimate um, glue for a lifelong bond within the covenant of, of marriage. But God is simply against distorting it. He's against abusing this beautiful gift. He's against impurity and greed, all forms of excessive lust and excessive desire. Uh, it's not just sexual lust, but lust for material wealth and stuff. And greed is an unrestrained desire for more. That's all it is, unrestrained desire for more. Sometimes I call it bigger, better, more syndrome. Just a life-controlling desire for bigger stuff, more stuff, better stuff. And these things, these types of things, um, this kind of greed and this kind of impurity and immorality just simply says what you have isn't enough. You need more. You have to have more. And it seems like it might be the great unconfessed sin of the West, or maybe the great unconfessed sin of uh, corporations and citizens, maybe Christians, is this 
right here. I have to have more, immorality, impurity, and greed. And of course, Paul's saying here, among you, can't, you have to restrain yourself from that, monitor yourself. And, 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 and is there a solution to immorality, impurity, and greed? Are we, dear children of God, are, are we to purge our appetites and impulses? Are we to puritanize our lifestyles? Actually, what if, and Paul explains this, what if it's nothing more complicated than this, a thankful attitude? In other words, I shine brightly and I kind of conform to Jesus instead of chameleon christening the culture by just living thankful. In, in, in essence, what I have, check this out, imagine this, what I have is enough. I'm so thankful for what I do have. I don't need to lust and crave and appetite and scheme and control and manipulate and otherwise blow past all the boundaries to get what I have to have, which is bigger and better and more, no matter what it is, right? So what Paul says is, Paul says, how do we live by those boundaries? You live thankful for what you have. That's freeing, right? Isn't that freeing to, instead of constantly be focused on and tuned into what I don't have and what I need, I'm tuned in and focused on what I already have, what God's already given me? What a joy that would be. I, I, I think we could probably, uh, counseling is so helpful in so many ways, but I wonder how far it would go to just focus less on what we're missing and more on what God has already given us. I wonder how, what that would do to our hearts in our minds. And God made us. He designed us for a life of contentment and generosity and thanksgiving. But our minds, hearts, words are commonly filled up with mindless complaining, mindless cynicism, uh, cynicism and criticism. Somehow um, mocking everyone and everything. Now, I myself am prone to a little sarcasm. Um, Yon says his, his words are about 90%. He is very unholy. Mine's probably less than that, 50%. Uh, I've used all kinds of excuses for sarcasm, not the least of which is Jesus was sarcastic. I'm just Christ-like. That's honestly, that's, what I've, that's my conclusion. But um, isn't it true that sometimes sarcasm fills up time, space, and words that would otherwise come from a sincere heart. It's insincerity. Sarcasm and mocking can sometimes do damage because there's a, there's, a, there's a wall there. There's a level of attack that occurs, right? If I attack first, then I don't um, fear being attacked as much. Get the first shot in verbally and then hold your ground. Sometimes that's the, 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 the attitude of it. Well, Paul addresses this. Paul describes this. Paul talks about this. Check this out. He says, obscene stories. This is right after he says, he's talking about being thankful, by the way. He says, obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes. These are not for you. These are not for you. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes. Now, if somebody doesn't do this, the first thing I think when somebody starts to kind of express these things about, oh, I don't tell those stories, I don't listen to those jokes, I don't say and do those things, the first, time, first thing I start to think is, oh, there's someone who's hung up on the rules. But look what Paul is saying. Paul is saying here, we restrain ourselves from obscene stories. We restrain ourselves from foolish talk. We restrain ourselves from coarse joking. These are not for you. Instead, replace those words, replace those, that level of bitterness and cynicism with what? Instead, be thankful to God. Here's what I imagine that he's trying to say. Not, not even just imagine. Here's what I believe he's trying to say. Every minute 
Every second, every phrase, every line, every sentence, every expression, every time that we are telling an obscene story, every time that we are using a sarcastic, cynical, foolish, coarse joke that's on the attack aiming at people is a sentence, word, line, paragraph that we have made no room for the words that should be coming out of our mouth, which are words of thankfulness. In other words, Paul is juxtapositioning. <laughs> Write that down in your notes. I've said that two times in the last 10 years. I want to just get a note of it. Write it down. <laughs> juxtapositioning these things side by side. Don't do this. Don't let these things come out of your mouth. I know this is what comes tumbling out of our mouths and out of our hearts when we're, whatever, we're consuming the culture. Instead, fill your words. Let the stuff coming out of your mouth demonstrate your thankfulness that God has given you what he's given you. Focus on, share your heart with, uh, say these things instead. These are new words with a new attitude of thanksgiving, and these attitudes correct the course of life that has become self-serving, that is um, certainly found in our vices, sexual immorality, greed, and obscene speech. So the consumer Christians consumer Christians, especially some who are chameleons and taken on the shape of the culture, you can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping things of this world. In other words, if you have an insatiable desire for things that are not God, if your trust and treasure is in the things that are not God, the Creator, they're for created things, then it demonstrates that you have not experienced Jesus, because Jesus is the true and better everything. He satisfies and gratifies, and he makes it possible for us to say, I don't need anyone or anything else. Why not? Because I have the treasure of Jesus. I have the, uh, I have the joy of Jesus. I have the peace of Jesus. And idolaters have an inordinate love. Idolaters have an inordinate love where they trust and treasure created things instead of the creator of things. So easy to do, right? We've all experienced this at Christmas um, uh, when our children are so excited to be with family, no. Their parents, no. You, no, with their gifts. They are excited to receive what the gift giver has given them, right? Not the gift itself. And so this is what happens when somebody becomes greedy for all that other stuff, sexual immorality, impurity, and so on. This is what he's teaching us. He's teaching us that eventually what we are, are to learn is you discover that there are people who uh, find their joy, their peace, their comfort, their treasure, and, and their trust is in the stuff that God created. And, he, and, and what he's saying is these people are separated from God. And he's not talking about somebody who belongs to Jesus, who's struggling, confessing, repenting, growing in their faith, their appetites are changing over time. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about somebody who's adopted this lifestyle and has, um, there's no struggle. They've just adopted this um, greedy immorality. So here's the third thing. The third thing is wise decisions. This is countercultural. A countercultural believer is someone who is expressing self-sacrificing love thankful attitude and wise decisions. They, are, they, they have careful wisdom, and that careful wisdom replaces careless foolishness. 
God wants us to avoid, right, completely avoid driving our precious lives and bodies as close to immorality as we can. Well, he doesn't prohibit this. I haven't gone this far. I haven't done this. I haven't uh, um, experienced that. And God wants us to pull back and just live wisely. How does he write it? He says, carefully determine what pleases the Lord. This is so, this is so helpful to picture this. I want you to picture that same shuffling infant that's now a toddler, and this toddler is now beyond just walking around the house. Now this toddler of ours is a grade school child, and that grade school child gets taken to the playground, and we have the joy of supervising this grade school child on the playground. Now, I don't know how you did it, but I found it very freeing as a parent to sit back and allow my child to experience all of the fun things on the playground. My wife, she was a lot more active in her involvement in their playtime than I was, if you know what I mean. A lot more careful, a lot more engaged. But I often would sit back and just say, you know what, if they drop off that and land on their head, they learn a valuable lesson, a valuable lesson. As long as we don't have to go to the emergency room, dust them off and send them back back where they came from, right? So here's what I want you to picture. This, this phrase here is so important. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord because, because when you can determine what pleases the Lord, you can live a life of freedom that is life, a life of freedom that changes your life. And what I mean by that is you start to explore and discover all of the beautiful things that God has provided to us and for us, and you don't have to concern yourself or worry that God is going to control what you're doing and how you're doing it all the time. In other words, he's not a parent that's running around the playground with us saying, okay, time for the monkey bars. Okay, time's up. Come on over. Slide time. Come on. Come on. Slide time. Slide. And then two minutes later, all right, we're done with the slide. Now we're going to come over here and we're going to swing. I'm so glad God doesn't do that to us. Here's what he says. I have all these beautiful things, life, family, marriage, career, neighbors, cultivating, creating, doing incredible things, joining a church family, singing and talking to the creator of the universe. I have all these things that bring joy, healing, and peace to you. And when you determine what they are, live free to do them. He's not uh, um, busying himself telling you what to do every morning, where you should go and what you should do carefully determine what pleases the Lord. We have a Bible full of pictures and descriptions of what pleases the Lord. And there's freedom when you discover those things. There's freedom uh, to live those out. And one vivid example of what it means, really, to discover these principles of freedom that God gives us. And these are principles for relationships and parenting and work and joy and healing and forgiveness, how to discover this life together. And one vivid example is the general wisdom that we get in the wisdom books. Very, very recently become, becoming some of my, my favorite parts of Scripture is Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And one of the things that we learn, if you know um, what pleases the Lord, you know that um, when we experience hardship in our lives, if you know the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Joy, you know that is probably not God punishing you. And you know that because of what you learn in the Scripture, in Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. 
maybe it's a Job experience, but might, most likely it's an Ecclesiastes or Proverbs experience. And that type of wisdom, the Bible's loaded with it. And here's actually a sample of it. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. And then, in, in another verse earlier, verse 7, don't participate in the things these people do. This is a big debate when I was growing up, big debate with my family, within my family. The big debate had to do with whether or not you avoided people who um, didn't belong to God, non-Christians, right? Anybody um, um, familiar with that approach, right? Um, If you're a Christian, you're to be set apart, separate from, and not interact with. It's too risky to get all dusted up and dirtied up with the things that the world is doing, right? And the Scriptures provide clarity on that. Paul gives us clarity here, and here's what he says. Take no part and don't participate. So that gives us the freedom, and you'll see the rest of the New Testament is all about this. There is, and Jesus was too, to the degree in which he was uh, accused by religious folks. So it gives us the freedom to be with and love people while resisting participating in what they do while taking no part in what they do. People who don't belong to God, who are living rough, harsh, difficult lives. One of my favorite pastors that I follow and read uh, what he writes tells these stories of how he was loving his neighbor to the degree in which it wasn't uncommon for him after they had gone to a country music concert for his neighbor to be passed out drunk in his home and he'd have to take him home, take his keys, take his shoes off, put him in bed, clip his toenail. No, 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 that's not, you didn't, don't, he didn't do that. So, this is what Paul is saying. We are with people, we love people, but we don't have to participate in what people are doing, right? We don't have to take part in what they're doing, but we can be there and love them. And I'll I mean, I still, I still remember under the, um, I still remember in high school. In high school at Liverpool, we had this period called leisure. Anyone from the 80s? Remember leisure? Here's the idea of leisure. Doesn't that sound great, though? Is there a high school kid who didn't sign up for leisure? What's wrong? What is wrong? Leisure was a study hall period that with whatever kind of uh, um, criteria, if you satisfy the criteria, you could spend your study hall in the cafeteria eating junk food and hanging out with friends. Sounds like fun. And I remember specifically one day sitting among a table full of my uh, uh, baseball friends and volleyball friends and classmate, home, homeroom friends were sitting there. And one time, this, this guy says to me, Williams, what's with you? And I said, oh my gosh, what do you mean? There could be so many things you mean. What do you mean? And he, um, he says to me, um, He's actually a Catholic high school friend of mine named Anthony. And, he, and, and of course, I was like, what? And he said, all of us here all the time on the weekends are together at the parties. And I, what is with you? I never, I always see you here with all of us, but I never see you there at the parties. And he said, what's with that? And, and under... And do you remember, the, remember how often, if you were, grew, grew up in the 80s and you were part of the church family, there was a lot of pressure to be witnessing, right? 
witness, witness, say it, be bold, let it fly. And I had this building pressure, like now's my chance to say something to my Catholic friend who's not insulting me. He's like, what's with you? And now's my, like, this is it. I'm in the spotlight. This is everything I've been preparing for all of my high school life and church and beyond. And so under building pressure to answer his question, I remember this vividly. I, was, I gave him one of these. I, I uh, well, I mean, I go to church. And he said to me, that's weird. So do I. He goes every Sunday with his Catholic family. He goes to Mass every Sunday. And he's like, eh, whatever. I guess I'll never know what's with you because it can't be church, right? So I had my one shining moment to tell him, and all I told him was, well, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm different because I go to church every Sunday. And, and in fact, I stumbled through the answer. But I had the right idea, right? I had the right idea. I didn't have the right words, but here's the right idea. I'm with them, but I'm not participating. I'm with them, not condemning them, throwing stones at them, protesting them, but um, not taking part. And so, uh, here's three quick wise do's and don'ts we'll see at the end of the chapter. Do you have a few minutes before you have to be at Denny's? You do? Is a reservation? Okay. I said that to somebody on Easter. I was like, you, they were on the way out to, to the restaurant. I was like, taking, taking her to Denny's? And he's like, no way, way too expensive. <laughs> Isn't that pretty good? That was funny. <laughs> I was like, yeah, prices are killer over there. Really killer. All right, here's three wise do's and don'ts for you. Be careful how you live. That's how he starts this passage here in chapter 5. We're all the way down to verse 15. So be careful how you live. Be careful, right? Um, determine carefully how the Lord wants you to live. And what does that actually mean? Well, be careful, be filled with understanding about this life. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. I say this at funerals all the time. The wisest man who wrote, maybe in history, who wrote a lot of wisdom, here's what he said, better to spend one day at a funeral than all your days at a festival party. Why is that? Because at the funeral, what do we do? We're like, oh my goodness, life's going to end. It's short. I'm not going to be here forever. What am I doing? What purpose is there for my life? Here's what Paul is telling us. Listen, it's important to make the most of every opportunity. These are evil days. And you know what else? It's short. Get started now. He is saying it's, life is purposeful. Don't be distracted. There's a purpose for your life. Don't be distracted by him or her or it or that or the thing. It ends with the soon coming return of Jesus. So be ready. That's the wisdom here that Paul is describing. So what does that mean? Well, Here's one, don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. What does the Lord want you to do? Actually, we, we teach this in our Roots track. If you haven't signed up, we'd love you to, 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 even if you've been here a long time, to participate. In our Roots track, we talk about how God's design, His purpose for us, trust and treasure Jesus. Go and show the image of God as you bear His image to the world. Live and give in community. Those are the things God wants you to do. And then have at it and live free and live full of joy and healing and hope and inner peace. Now understand what the Lord wants you to do. He wants you to create culture, cultivate culture, use your gifting, your talent, and your trait to contribute to the culture, whether it's raising a family, discipling your kids, or otherwise discipling your family, or being with and loving on people that God's put around you. So how do we remain focused? 
Well, here's how we remain focused. Don't be drunk with wine because it'll ruin your life. Now, we know that in Scripture, uh, um, it's written that alcohol, wine here will, will um, in fact, in moderation, will gladden the heart. We know that um, too much consistently, right, it's not under control and not in moderation, and it's not in sobriety, creates a painful lack of discernment and a life of regret. That's the reality of it. And so we replace filling ourselves with wine with the sober-mindedness filling of the Holy Spirit. That's what animates us, and God does it through His Holy Spirit. We seek the Holy Spirit, we pray in the Holy Spirit, sing in the Holy Spirit, think about the things the Holy Spirit brings to our mind. So what's all that mean? How do we... How do we do that? Well, we're singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among ourselves, gathered together, Sunday and corporate worship. We're singing together and learning by what we're reading and celebrating all that God has done. And it's possible that there are some people gathered with us, just like there are with any church, who was raised in an unhealthy, anti-emotional culture. And we need to pray, and maybe you would pray too, that God will open our hearts and open our mouths to declare His praise. I know that's not natural and normal for some of you. For some, natural and normal for some of you is just spectating, but we want to encourage you. When the Holy Spirit is starting to work in you, you are among friends, and you are among people who are familiar with letting stuff come out of our mouth that expresses the joy that we have in Jesus. You might say, I'm not that great of a singer. Come sit over here. I'm horrendous. I'm horrendous. And if you think you're bad, I'm worse. It's much worse. In other words, we are not singing for the ears of other people. We're corporately getting together and let the Holy Spirit cause us to sing for the ears of our Father who has done life-changing things in us and through us and for us. We're not singing for each other. We're not singing to be seen. It's also possible that other people have been raised in an over-emotional, hyper-sentimental church environment or culture, and we'll need to be ensured that we're singing songs that are um, sound doctrinally, that are about God. They're not just Jesus is my boyfriend themed, and I'm overly sentimental, but church family singing is also not optional. It's not just for the feelers in the room. It's not just for the Christian professionals who are experts at going to church services. It's commanded by Paul. So, sin is, is essentially rebelliousness against God's 